Anacreon in heaven, where he sat in full glee. A few sons of harmony sent a petition that he their inspirer and patron would be. When this answer arrived from the judge. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers 100 pages at a time, giving my commentary, my thoughts, uh, my perspectives, historical context, and all that. Um, if you're just joining us, we are—we have just begun a series on the writings of Thomas Paine. Um, and in the last episode, we looked at Common Sense. So you might want to go back and, and listen to that. In this episode, we'll be starting with The Crisis. And we'll, we'll spend a, two or three episodes on The Crisis. Um, but before getting into the text itself, the question is, what did Thomas Paine actually do during the American Revolution besides write the American Crisis pamphlets? It's what he's most known for during these years, but um, he did a lot more. Um, you know, the, the American Revolutionary War was you know, five, six years, and he did a lot more than just write the 13 Crisis um, pamphlets. The list is actually really long. He served in the Pennsylvania militia. He was with American soldiers at the Battle of Trenton and the campaigns in New Jersey, which is when he started writing the crisis pamphlets. He negotiated with Indians on behalf of the state of Pennsylvania. He served on a committee for foreign affairs. He spent several weeks with Washington's army as an observer while writing the crisis. He helped craft and defend the Pennsylvania state constitution. He worked with the government of Pennsylvania to control price increases during the war. He made several important proposals on regulating the army and uh, was very vocal on his ideas on how to fund it. And he joined the uh, mission to France to help secure supplies, and he did much more. He was, in other words, not just an author by any means. He was a very active um, player in the American Revolution. He was as active as any of the other founders, um, and he really should be seen more as just a writer, but uh, in this podcast, we'll be focusing on his words. We'll focus on what he said and what he wrote rather than what he did, but I just wanted to remind us that he was doing a lot and he was a very active player. And it would be the same in the French Revolution as well. He's most well known as writing the rights man, defending the French Revolution, but he was in the forefront of revolutionary politics in France as well. So in this episode, we'll look at the first seven crisis pamphlets. They really move us from beginning at the low point in the American war effort. The, the opening quote of the American crisis is, of course, the times that try men's soul. Um, but by the time he pens the seventh crisis pamphlet, America is on the brink of victory. When Crisis 7 was written, the war still had three years to go, but the Battle of Saratoga more or less assured the Americans of independence, and Payne knew it. In fact, he was quite assured of American victory even before that. If we take the crisis pamphlets as evidence, the war was won within a year of independence due to the failure of the British to smash uh, the rebellion. And we see confidence very quickly in the crisis letters, crisis pamphlets. The American crisis is an interesting set of letters to read because of their diversity and their humor. They all deal with slightly different issues. And while there's a bit of overlap, there's not that much. And I think they can be taken as a... as almost planned in a sense. I know sometimes he was responding to things he was working on. Sometimes he was responding to the news of the time, but they're really diverse. And I think they each stand alone in various ways. They're not just repeating the same kind of rhetoric again and again. 
He does seem to have a set of issues he wanted to talk about and discuss over the course of the war, and he couldn't cram them all into one pamphlet. So each pamphlet has a focus, um, and together they, they really create a nice set of, of almost, in some cases, even policy documents or, or arguments he wants to make, both to the American people and to the broader world, and particularly Great Britain. Sometimes they develop issues he'd been dealing with as a supporter of the revolution, such as taxation, the role of militias, the role of currency, um, the strategy of the competing generals, international affairs, and whatnot. Often they're responding to recent events. So the crisis is in part propaganda. That's their main goal is to get Americans confident about their ability to win the war. And, you know, whether the war, war news was good or bad, he always wanted to to show it in a positive light, show it that the Americans were on the path to victory um, and why. Now, it's not just uh, blind propaganda and jingoism. He's, he actually has good reasons for arguing that the Americans are going to win the war. It's also news reporting. So he's commenting on recent events and often he would publish a crisis document during, uh, after an important battle or an after important event. And a lot of the crisis letters are just straight up trolling of the English, I, and especially English generals. They were really a target of his ridicule. I mentioned this in the last episode, is when you go back and read Thomas Paine today, you're really struck by how much, how effective he was as a troll, of really making fun of the other side, of, of, of picking at their weak spots, of exploiting them, of, of trying to make them feel off guard, at least as far as he could as a writer. He seemed to be as most joyful when he was making fun of British presumptions that the war could be easily won or won at all. Okay, so Crisis One. Crisis One is the most famous. It starts with that most famous quote, and I'll, I'll review it to you. Quote, these are the times that try men's soul, souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. And, but he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of men and women. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. Tis dearness only that gives a thing its value. Heaven knows how to set up its proper price against its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be rated highly. Britain, with an army to enforce her tyranny, has declared that she has the right not only to tax, but to bind us in all cases whatsoever. And if being bound... In that manner is not slavery, then there is no such thing as slavery upon earth. Even the expression is impious, for so limited a power can only belong to God. End quote. That's the first paragraph of, of the crisis. And that sets up the theme of this first crisis pamphlet, which is really a, uh, the closest we get to the dark ages of the revolutionary crisis. The rest are fairly optimistic, um, but this is the one that really sets out that this could be lost and sets the stakes of what could be lost. It's written about a year after Common Sense and six months or so after Independence. So things are still quite fragile. So while painting the, the United States, the Young Republic, as an underdog, Payne also shows uh, both what's at stake and, and why they, they can win despite being um, over, over, uh, overpowered, at least for the short time period. One piece of evidence he presents here is that the British have already changed their strategy from the early days of the fighting by moving from New England, by coming to the middle colonies, to New Jersey and New York. They've already kind of conceded the North to the Patriots. 
um, and that this part of the country is full of loyalists. So in a sense, the British are already um, falling in their fallback position. Um, he talks about the strength of the militia. He talks about the stakes of victory just in terms of the future wars that, yes, the war will be difficult and and hard fought, but the result of that will be peace for the future. He, he almost presents it as a moral duty for the Americans to finish this war so future generations will not have to, to fight. It's a common theme in Paine's writing that republics don't fight wars. Um, it's, it's not, you know, the history after Paine has shown this not to be true at all, but um, the idea that that monarchies will being tied to Britain will just create more conflict in the future. So it's the burden of this generation to achieve victory. Um, he talks about the treatment of the Tories, uh, the loyalists, and show that this itself is a sign that America is going to mature into a republic that really has the best interests of of the world. And a lot of this is spent to just trying to shore up the confidence of soldiers. There's a nice quote a, a few pages into Crisis One. Quote, I love the man that can smile in trouble, that can gather strength from distress and show brave by grow brave by reflection. Tis the business of little minds to shrink, but he whose heart is firm and whose conscience approves his conduct will pursue his principles unto death. My own line of reasoning is to myself as straight and clear as a ray of light. Not all the treasure of the world, so far as I believe, could have induced me to support an offensive war, for I think it murder. But if a thief breaks into my house, burn and destroy my property, or kill and threaten me and those that are in it, and to bind me in all cases whatsoever to his absolute will, am I to suffer it? What signifies it to me whether he, he, he who does it is a king or a common man, my countryman or not my countryman, whether it is done by the individual villain or the army of them? If the reason... To the root of things, we shall find no difference. Neither can, neither can any just cause be assigned why we should punish in one case and pardon in the other. Let them call me a rebel and welcome. I feel no concern from it. But I should suffer the misery of devils were I to make a whore of my soul by swearing allegiance to one whose character is that of a stodish, stupid, stubborn, worthless, brutish man. So this is his call to arms uh, towards the end of, of Crisis One. In Crisis 2, Payne already is eager to kind of push the fight to, to Britain's shore. It's addressed to, to Lord Howe, and it's the first of several crisis letters that he addresses to him. So it's already put on his trolling hat a little bit. And he starts out by setting himself up as a writer versus the soldier. And he argues that like the soldier can never achieve, quote unquote, universal empire. That's only the domain of the writer. Quote, the Republic of Letters is more ancient than monarchy and a far higher character in the world than the vassal court of Britain. So but he opens this by basically saying that I can achieve things as a writer um, that you as a soldier can never achieve. He then begins to troll him in various ways by pointing out, for instance, the the greatness of America and how America will be seen as great, that his he's sending his loyalist allies in England basically to doom and that he's resting his hopes on victory on the most disgusting, traitorous, foolish men in America, the, the Tories. His main point to, to Howe and, and of course to his American readers as well is that victory can only be achieved through utter brutality, through a complete betrayal of any principles of, of honor or, or 
faithfulness to any any purpose beyond that of violence. Quote, your avowed purpose, your avowed purpose here is to kill, conquer, plunder, pardon, and enslave. And the ravages of your army through the jerseys has been marked by as much barbarism as if you had openly professed yourself to the Prince of Ruffians. Not even the appearance of humanity has been preserved either on the march or the retreat of your troops. No general order that I could ever learn has ever been issued to prevent or even forbid your troops from robbery wherever they came. And the only instance of justice, if it can be called such, which has distinguished you for impartiality, is that you treated and plundered all alike. What could be not carried away has been destroyed, and mahogany furniture has been deliberately laid on the fire for fuel, rather than that man should be fatigued with cutting wood. So this is the nature of the war that Howe has brought to America's shores. The point being, of course, that even through victory, victory can only be achieved by Britain through the complete alienation of, of Great Britain from the American colony. So even through in victory, they will have, have defeat. Um, the second crisis ends with a very overt suggestion that, you know, you can bring hundreds of thousands of troops or tens of thousands of troops to America without achieving victory. You, can, you're not, you won't be able to bring us back into the fold of empire. However, a few hundred or maybe a thousand committed American revolutionaries dropping in Britain might spread the flames of revolution um, very quickly. Um, so he ends with a threat, which I think is a nice addition, even though this is still a point where America is, is suffering defeats and um, it doesn't seem, you know, victory's a... Conf uh, there's, he's not fully confident of victory yet, but he's getting there. I mean, the, the argument running throughout the crisis, especially in the articles signed off to the British, is that, I mean, how can you even achieve victory? You, know, you can defeat us in, in, on the field from time to time, but the army is still here and you don't occupy most of the country. You might occupy a city here and there, but, you know, there's really no reasonable reason to think they're going to win in the long term. Um, and Payne understood that very early on. And it's an important argument he's given to the American people why they should be confident. Um, Crisis 3 was written uh, or published at least on April 19, 1777, the two-year anniversary of the breakout of, of fighting. And after that campaign in the, in the Jerseys, which ended you know, fairly successfully, at least the British advances in the middle colonies were, were checked. This crisis... Um, in part, is going back to a bigger a bigger thesis. Yeah, especially in the earliest crisis letters, that Brit all Britain can do is kind of invest its troops in the hoping of defeating the army in the field, but that's not going to achieve victory. Um, that that kind of victory is impossible. So, quote: Britain, like a gamester nearly ruined, hath now put all her losses into one bet and is playing a desperate game for the to total. If she win it, she wins from me my life. She wins the continent as the forfeited profit of rebels. The right of taxing those that are left as reduced subjects and the power of binding them as slaves. And the single die which determines this unparalleled event is whether we support our independence or she overturn it. And he thinks that's just a, a bet that cannot, you know, be, be won by Britain. It's, it comes down to, you can win a battle, but you can't win the war, um, especially when you have you know, a significant portion of the population of America supporting independence. Now, much of Crisis 3 is a review from what he said in Common Sense. It goes over the arguments for independence. It also, like 
uh, the later editions of Common Sense do go over the question of the Quakers, and he's picking his poking his finger in the eye of the Quakers again for, you know, how dare you say you support peace when you support empire? You can't support peace by backing empire. The only way you can support long-term peace is by supporting American independence. At least that's his argument for the Quakers. One thing to say about Crisis 3 is he foreshadows total war here. And he talks about how, and this is another part of his argument about why Britain can't win. It's because all Britain can bring to the Americas are our soldiers, um, fighting men, but the United, the United States has its militia, it has its fighting men, and they may not be as well trained, and they may individually die, they may struggle, but America also has the population, it has the people, and victory requires the harnessing of all these groups of society. Quote, our support and success depend on such a variety of men and circumstances that everyone who does but wish well is of some use. There are men who have strange awkwardness to arms, yet they have their hearts to risk every shilling to the cause or in support of those who have better talents for defending it. Nature in the arrangement of mankind is fitted some for every service of life. We're all soldiers who would starve and go naked, and were none soldiers, all would be slaves. As disaffection to independence is the badge of a Tory, so affection to it is the mark of a Whig, and the different service of the Whigs, down from those who nobly contribute everything to those who have nothing to render but their wishes, tend all to the same center, though we're different degrees of merit and ability. The larger we make the circle, the more we shall harmonize, and the stronger we shall be. All who want to shut out is disaffection, and that excluded, we must accept from each other such duties as we are best fitted to bestow. A narrow set of politics, like a narrow set of religion, is calculated only to sour the temper and to live in variance with mankind. So this, it seems to me, is... is prefacing or like foreshadowing uh, the argument about total war that everyone has to contribute to war and everyone will and that for him is is why america has to win or, or can't essentially lose the, the conflict crisis four um there's not that much to say about it it was published on september 12th 1777 um and it's it's just a call to arms it, and in some ways it ex extends the quote i i highlighted from crisis three about the necessity of the entire population working together the consequence of this crisis is the is the previous day's loss at Brandywine Creek. So it was, it was published one day after that. So it was really written pretty much of, of the day of the defeat at Brandywine, Brandywine Creek. But Payne's argument is that because of this mass mobilization of, of the society, there's really not a chance for victory. So don't lose your spirits. In fact, this is the time to stick to your guns and, and finish the job. He reminds us that every day makes it harder for the British to win, right? Um, quote, it is in your power by spirited improvement of the present circumstances to turn it to a real advantage. Howe is now weaker than before, and every shot will contribute to reduce him. You are more immediately interested than any other part of the continent. Your all is at stake. It is not so with the, great with the general cause. You are devoted to the enemy, by the enemy to plunder and destruction. It is the encouragement with Howe, the chief plunderer, has promised his army. Thus circumscribed, thus circumstanced, you may save yourself by a manly resistance, but you can have no hope in any other conduct. So he doesn't actually dwell on the defeat. He doesn't dwell on what happened at Brandywine Creek. He only mentions it really in a line or two. His point is that now is the time to, to strike forward and, and mobilize the forces of, of the region. 
Crisis Five is is was published in March of 1778. There's actually a pretty big gap in time from the previous Crisis, which was published in early September of 1777, about a week uh, before the Saratoga campaign really kicked off, and about a month or so before the victory at Saratoga. Um, that really turned the course of the war and brought France into the war on America's side. So it's a six-month gap. It comes out in March 21, 1778. And by this point, Payne is completely confident of victory. And he addresses this letter to Howe. And he, he repeats a little bit of what he said before, just about the brutality and the of, of the British war effort, how Britain's war effort itself is going to just increase the divide between Great Britain and the United States. Um, and how he's just not being a gentleman. But it really is about midway through the the pamphlet that Payne really begins to troll Howe more aggressively by being an armchair general. Um, by saying, well, if I were you, I would have done it this way. And maybe you could have won this way. And it's it's it's, it's rather humorous in how he's able to, to pick at uh, Howe's mistakes and make him look like uh, an idiot um, through throughout the pamphlet. So, for instance, a quote here, um, quote, The time when you made this retreat was the very time you ought to have fought a battle. In order to put yourself in a condition of recovering in Pennsylvania, which you have lost at Saratoga, and the reason why you did not must be either prudence or cowardice. The former supposes your inability, and the latter needs no explanation. I draw no conclusions, sir, but such as are naturally deduced from time invisible facts, and such as will always, will always have been being while the facts which produce them remain unaltered. And he goes on and again, like second guessing most of the decisions that Howe makes in recent battles. Um, at some point in this crisis, he, he sets aside his, his, direct, his pen directing towards Howe and he goes back to, to the inhabitants of America and so he begins talking directly to the Americans, again, showing how they're really in a position to um, to win the war. He reminds them it's the duty of every person to contribute to the war effort, but um, you know whether it's by money or service or even clothing. And he provides a plan for basically funding the militia of, of each state. He comes, up, he comes up with a very interesting scheme here of how to fund the militia and saying like that everyone should serve some period of time, but if they don't want to serve or are not able to serve, they can offer up a certain amount of money um, to help support the militia. Boy, I have a really annoying um, scooter um, running around here. It must be the mailman. They, the, the mail carriers here in Taiwan travel by scooter. And, you know, I kind of live in a kind of a roundy area. So sometimes when the mailman's coming through, it, it can be pretty noisy for a little while as he goes house to house. In Crisis 6, it's written in October of 1778 published in October, on October 20th, 1778. And this one's also directed to the British, but it's directed this time to the higher commanders, General Clinton and William Eden, the British commissioners at New York. So here he's basically taking on the issue of the political settlement. And at the time, the British started to venture forth plans for reconciliation and pain, laughs this off. It's like, how ridiculous can you be? You know, Now that you're losing, you're talking about a political settlement. You're talking about listening to our petitions of trying to work out some agreement. But he also points out the ridiculousness of trying to, to rule colonies, rule states that have already broken off their independence, have gone their own way, 
and just the vapidness of, of any level of British rule outside of the city of New York itself, which they still occupied. The specific purpose of this pamphlet is to respond to a, a, like a, a British speech that was given by one of these guys. And he goes through paragraph by paragraph showing the vapidness of, of their claims to have any right to rule Great, Great Britain. By this point, the French alliance was already in, in, in action, in effect, and um, France was pulled into the war. So victory was even farther away when this speech was being made. But it was really, it, it was the, the grandness of it, the pomposity, pomposity of, of the British response to the situation that so uh, bothered Payne and, and well, I guess it just shows the British are so out of touch, right? Quote, if you look back, you see nothing but loss and disgrace. If you look forward to the same scene continues and the close is an impenetrable gloom. You may plan and execute little mischiefs, but they are worth the, but are they worth the expense they cost you? Or will such partial evils have any effect on the general cause? Your expedition to Egg Harbor will be felt at a distance like an attack upon a hen roost and expose you to in Europe with a sort of childish frenzy. Is it worthwhile to keep an army to protect you in writing proclamations or to get you once a year into winter quarters? Possessing yourself of towns is not conquest, but convenience, and in which you will one day or other be trepanned. Your retreat from Philadelphia was only a timely escape, for your next expedition will be less fortunate. So the question Payne's asking the British at this point is like, what do you hope to get? at this point in the war is there any perceivable victory and if not why do you keep fighting what are you fighting for um an honorable victory perhaps but uh pain doesn't see much use for that and Payne's anti-war perspective his hatred of war um really you know he, that's his question like why fight it just causes violence and brutality and, and devastation these are lessons that america perhaps should have learned or, or could have benefited from in in the 20th century I, certainly. In Crisis 7, um, which was published, let me find it, published November 11th, 1778, um, this one is addressed to the people of England. So he, he stops addressing the generals and the commanders of the British and decides to write one addressed directly to the people of, of Britain. And he does a couple of things in here. One is he sets up the impossibility of victory. He goes over the ground he's covered before that victory is not possible for Britain. It's just going to cost you. It's going to be a big burden for you. Um, he goes through and reviews the purposes of independence, the things that happened in case, I guess, his audience wasn't paying attention. The reasons the United States uh, established its independence, why hostilities broke out. And he kind of reviews that, that history a little bit. But his ultimate point here is that the British people own the honor of Britain and the things that Britain was doing in the Americas. Its brutality, its violence, its war making, its warmongering in America was a moral burden of the British people themselves. And here I think he's addressing the question of like, why is this war still being fought? And the answer some British people perhaps would have given was honor. We need some kind of honorable resolution to this um, fight. And then Payne's response is, the honor of your nation is revealed in its actions, in its, in its war, in, in its fighting. These themes of, of both the impossibility of victory, 
and the burden this is going to cause on the British people to do that. And the morality of the war come together in the final paragraph of, of the crisis seven. Quote, having thus shown you the danger of your proclamation, I now show you the folly of it. The means contradict the design. You threaten to lay waste in order to render America a useless acquisition of alliance to France. I reply that the more destruction you commit, if you could do it, the more valuable to France you would make that alliance. You can destroy only houses and goods, and by doing so you increase our demand for her, uh, upon her for materials and merchandise. For the wants of one nation, provided it has freedom and credit, naturally produces riches of the other. And you can neither ruin the land nor prevent the vegetation. You would increase the exportation of our produce as payment, which to her would be a new source of wealth. In short, you would cast about for a plan on purpose to enrich your enemies. You could not have hit upon a better. So he lays forth the moral argument in saying, if you can't win, if you can't bring the United States back into the empire, you're only fighting to destroy America. And there's no moral grounds for that. And even that... Payne optimistically argues would just create, you know, more trade between um, America and its allies, in this case, France. Well, so that does it. That's about 100 pages uh, of the crisis letters. Um, in the next episode, we'll keep going on with the crisis. And I think there's a few other sorted pamphlets on taxation and things that I'll briefly look at. They're not exactly the most um, riveting writing, but they are important to um, as Payne starts to think more and more about what's the long-term foundation for um, American government. government. Well, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this, please rate, subscribe, share, comment on it. You can reach me at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can just comment on uh, these podcasts directly. Um, yeah, in the next episode, we'll continue on with the crisis and I'll see you then. In the Fiddle and flute No longer be mute I'll lend you my name And inspire you to boot And besides I'll instruct you Like me to entwine The 